So we're starting this series of messages on the book of Ruth, a story of God's redemption. And some of you might be wondering out of the gate, why on earth are we going to study a little book like the book of Ruth? And I want to tell you that there's a twofold answer to that. The first and the most obvious and the most important is this, that it's in the Bible. And all of the Bible is worth knowing. There just aren't sections of the Bible that can, well, I can live without that. In other words, God has placed everything in his word on purpose for a purpose. And so whether the book seems large and important or small and almost inconsequential, if it's in the Bible, it's worth knowing. And we want to know it. So that's one reason that we've landed in the book of Ruth. A second reason is this. It's our practice in this church Many of you are familiar with this. We have a lot of visitors this morning, and so you might be interested to know it's our practice in this church to try to make our way through the various styles of Scripture that we find. The Bible has many different sorts of what they call genres. For instance, a letter, like a New Testament epistle, is going to be different than poetry which is going to be different than prophecy, which is going to be different than history. And so we try to rotate through the different sorts of genres, and that's going to help us hopefully, one, gain an appreciation for them, but two, and more important, help us to know how to interpret them, how to engage with them, how to read them. Because obviously the way that you read poetry is going to be different from the way that you're going to read a pastoral epistle. So that's our practice here. We try to preach and teach the whole counsel of God as best we can, whether it's from this pulpit or from the various studies that we have uh, through the weeks and through the months. That's what we're trying to do. And probably a third and just kind of fun for me reason that we're in the book of Ruth is because I chose it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and when I say that, I said that on purpose to make it sound like, oh, yeah, big deal. But here's the thing. Here's something that I've seen the Lord do, which just always amazes me. Right? I have a commitment to getting through the, through the genres and keep track of that. But here's what I have found. Sometimes we just choose a book, and it's like, I'm not sure how that's going to apply. But it's in the scripture, and it's of this genre, so we're going to choose it. We did that with the book of Haggai, some of you may wonder. right? You say, minor prophets. What a... What an identity crisis the poor prophet has. He's a minor prophet. You know, nobody reads those. Yes, they do. We do. They're important. And so you go and you choose a book like Ruth. And what I have seen the Lord do and what I believe he will do this time is he will amaze us with his timeliness. That there are going to be things coming out of this book that we probably didn't know were in there that are going to make a difference in our lives and are going to be timely messages for some of us, and I love it when God shows off like that. So by way of introduction, what do we know about the Old Testament book of Ruth? Well, we know this. It's a short book. It's only four chapters long, and its human author is unknown, so we're not exactly sure who wrote it. It is of the genre known as historical narrative, which means it is a, a, an account of events that actually took place at a specific time in Israel's history. If you have done some reading ahead, and I hope that some of you have, then you will note that Ruth is a very uh, concise book. It's, it's a short book, and it's a concise book. It reminds me of the New Testament book of James. Same thing, short and concise. The author uses an economy of words, but you cannot let the diminutive size of the book of Ruth any more than the book of James detract from its profound and practical content. In other words, Ruth is a small book with a big message. It has been described by one person as a Hebrew short story told with consummate skill 
Among historical narratives in scripture, it is unexcelled in its compactness, vividness, warmth, beauty, and dramatic effectiveness, an exquisitely wrought jewel of Hebrew narrative art. The themes we can expect to find as we make our way through this book are loyalty and love and redemption. The book of Ruth is a love story on multiple levels, including its connection to the greatest love story ever, the story of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we get to the end of the book. But today we're at the beginning, and our focus this morning will be on the first five verses of Ruth. It's a section known as the prologue. These verses, by the way, begin a chapter that one preaching professor says is virtually unpreachable. Indeed, chapter 1 is, in his words, and I think he's pretty much right, awful and horrible, and not the kind of text you can share with your congregation and then say, go have a nice week. <laughs> so just to prime the pump for you, just to set the expectation really low, uh, a preaching professor says this is virtually unpreachable. I disagree. If you have read ahead, then you know, though, why he would say such a thing. Um, we're not going to be able to divvy this book up into four or five feel-good sermons. It's not going to work that way. No matter how hard I try, I can't make it work that way and be faithful to the text. And we should know this, that Old Testament narratives don't lend themselves always to nice and neat uh, points. <laughs> They're not written for the preacher so much as the reader, right? Ruth is a story. So it's not made up of, of a bunch of sermonic points. It's made up of a bunch of scenes, graphic scenes and dramatic scenes, which together make up the whole of the story. So if we were to skip one or to fast forward over one to get to another, some of you do that, right? You buy, you buy a mystery book and then you go to the end and find out who done it. Yeah, that's awful. You shouldn't do that, right? But some of you do that. And, and if we were to do that in the book of Ruth, you would miss, you would miss tension. You would miss character development. You would miss conflict. You would miss resolutions. And ultimately, we, we would miss really the whole point that the book is trying to make. So we have to take our time. And yet, for the sake of time, so that I don't stand here and preach a three-hour sermon on the book of Ruth, everyone said amen, and for the purpose of digestibility, so that we're not try you're not trying to drink out of a fire hose here, trying to understand all this, we're going to split up the book of Ruth into manageable messages, several of them, as we make our way through the chapters in sequence, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And right away, we're going to see that chapter 1 begins in a precarious spot, and from there, its narrative arc goes decidedly downward. The message title captures this descent, this movement. It is from bad to worse. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before your word. Lord, we want to understand it. We want to receive it. We want it to stick with us. We're asking that it would change us, and we know that you promise in your word it can, and it will, and it will not return void. So, Father, remove from us anything which would get in the way of the work that you want to do in us through your word this morning. It is your voice that we have come to hear, God, because it is you that we need. We desperately need you, and we need to hear from you. So speak, Lord, we pray. Amen. So if your Bible is open and you get right to the first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, it says something like this, in the days when the judges ruled. 
In the days when the judges ruled, the story of Ruth takes place in a period in Israel's history which we call the period of the judges. And when you and I think of judges, we probably think of people in uh, robes, in courtrooms with benches and gavels and uh, upholding uh, justice and rendering verdicts. But the judges in the Old Testament were not primarily judicial officials, okay? They were more military leaders, clan chieftains. And Israel wasn't organized in those days as a, as a unified country under a singular leader like Moses or Joshua. In fact, the period of the judges is about 400 years from the death of Joshua to the inauguration of Israel's first king. And during this time, Israel was, wasn't together. It just wasn't a unified country. And the book of Judges records the ups and the downs, and mostly the downs, of the Hebrew people. As during those days, they forsake often the covenant obligations they've made with God, and they do things their way. In other words, they just leave God to go do things their way. Twice we read in Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, and then at the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the culture. That's the backdrop, the setting of the book of Ruth, a volatile time, an unsteady time politically and religiously and naturally, morally. It was a time of backsliding. It was a time of degeneracy, of confusion and conflict. That's the setting of the story of Ruth. Times are hard. They were dark days. And just when you thought that it couldn't get any worse, there's a little placard hanging in our camp at Beach Hill Pond. Something that was either picked up by or given to my grandfather who liked these little sayings. And it reads this way. It says, they said to me, cheer up, it could be worse. So I did, and sure enough, it got worse. <laughs> Ruth is set in one of those most difficult times of Israel's history. And then the writer tells us it got worse. There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now know this. When you're reading Old Testament narratives, the names of people and the names of places can sometimes be especially significant. You're going to see this, I hope, here in just a few minutes. And you and I are usually at a disadvantage when it comes to figuring this stuff out, okay? Because we're not really always uh, familiar with the geography. Or for instance, if I read Bethlehem, can you place it on a map? If I say the country of Moab, most of us check out at that point. But these can be significant, significant details. And so it's always good to do a little bit of sleuthing, if you can, when you're reading Old Testament narrative and you come across these things that don't make a lot of sense to you. One of the benefits of living in the information age is there's a lot of it out there. And you can go figure out some of this stuff with a little bit of effort. It's a good practice to understand, if you can, the names and the places of, in an Old Testament story and to see if they have a significance or a special significance. For instance, why do you suppose it's in here that, that there is a man of Bethlehem? What do we know about Bethlehem? Jesus was born there. I'm so happy to hear you say that. The 830 crowd did not know. <laughs> They did. They just weren't as vocal, that's all. Uh, so it's the city of David. It's the place where our Savior was born. So Bethlehem has a real, real important uh, place in our history as Christians, in, in our legacy, right? It, it, what, do you know what Bethlehem means? Do you know how it's translated? House of bread. 
house of bread. Okay, now this is getting a little deeper. Bethlehem is not only the, the birthplace of Jesus, but it's the house of bread. So get this, guys. It is no coincidence whatsoever that Jesus, who would describe himself as the bread of life, who said anybody who comes after me is not going to be hungry. Jesus is born in the house of bread. The bread of life is born in the house of bread. The house of bread in God's great wisdom was the birthplace of the best bread ever. That is cool. You would not know that if you don't take just a few seconds to say, what does any of this mean? But here it is in our story, some 1,100 years or so before Jesus, there's a problem in the house of bread. And you know what that problem is? There isn't any. What on earth is going on with a house of bread that has no bread? The point is, it's a desperate time. The point is, things are not the way they're supposed to be. The literal condition of famine is consistent with and indicative of the spiritual condition in a nation of people who turn their backs on God, who fail to keep covenant with their God. If we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, we will see in that book that Moses, right, God's deliverer of the Israelites, out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land that Moses tells Israel some 18 times in the first 28 chapters, be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful. 20, 18 times in 20, at least 18 in 28 chapters. And what's he telling them to be careful about? Be careful to do what God tells you to do. Be careful to not transgress what God tells you to do. Be careful to keep his ways. And then in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and 19, these are not all the consequences, just some of them read you four verses. But if you will not obey the, but if you will not, let's just stop there. Be careful to obey God, but if you will not. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And what is happening in the period of the judges is the people have exchanged the blessings of life with God for the curses of life on their own terms. And what God said was going to happen absolutely came to pass. And the basket and the kneading bowl and the house of bread are empty. Instead of abundance, there is hunger. Hunger enough to make a man want to uproot his entire family and travel across the border to a foreign nation. And Moab was the chosen destination. Across the Dead Sea from Bethlehem. In an area today that we know to be Jordan. Do you know much at all about Moab? The origin of Moab, the land and the people who'd come to be known as Moabites is quite distasteful. It goes back to the days of Lot, who with his daughters were rescued from the destruction of the notoriously sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story? That God chose to save Lot and his family. He said, you've got to get out of there. I'll give you time to get out of there because I'm going to rain down 
fire and brimstone, and I'm going to destroy this city. Remember what happened to Lot's wife? Lot's wife, Salty, didn't make it all the way out. Right? See, names have special significance. Lot and his daughters run out of the city, and they're hiding out in the country of Zoar, but here's where it takes a really weird twist. His daughters become concerned that by living out here in the caves with nobody around in this exile, that they would never have children. And they want to have children, so they devised a plan to get their father drunk and seduce him, which they did, both of them, and as a result, they both conceived and bore children, naming one Moab and the other Ben-Amin. Moab literally means of my father. And it is preserved in Israel's history as a subtle, unpleasant reminder of its unpleasant origins. The Moabites who were literally conceived in sin, motivated by a lack of trust in God during a seemingly impossible situation, eventually become a pagan tribe, a frequent enemy to Israel, known for their worship of false gods. So that's Moab in a nutshell, and in light of this, why would any Hebrew want to move there? Why, why would any faithful Jew want to go over there? God, as you remember from our study in Exodus, some of you, has saved his people from slavery in Egypt to make them his very own. He's given them a promised land, and he's told them how to live in it. But the Israelites have decided they're not going to pay attention to God, and they're going to do it their own way. They seem to have forgotten their rescue. They seem to even have forgotten the God who rescued them. The concept of faith in God is not in vogue in this day it is truly every man for himself, every man doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And there is this one man in particular. I think you see him in verse 2. His name is Elimelech. We see in verse 2 there that he believes it's the right thing to do to leave the promised land of God. So you know what's ironic about this? Elimelech's name means God is my king. Friend, if God is your king, will you be quick to return to what he has brought you out of? If God is your king, will you trust him to sustain you in hard times? If God is your king, will you believe that he has your best in mind? Even in hard times, when he allows or even sends seasons of literal or figurative drought or famine into your life. If God is your king, will you trust him? Or will you take matters into your own hands? Will you try to wriggle out from under the circumstances that almighty God intends for you to use to produce in you his character? Elimelech may mean God is my king, but he's not acting up to his name, is he? Functionally, he does not act like God is his king. God is able to provide bread. Do you believe that? God can provide bread to his people. His righteous don't need to suffer that way. Jesus kind of showed off with a little bit of bread. Remember that? Right? I am the bread of life and I can prove it. Give me a couple of loaves and I'll feed you all and have leftovers. God can make bread, but somehow that doesn't seem to be part of Elimelech's reality. 
doesn't really necessarily believe it. And I don't want to be too critical of this guy, and the reason is the text isn't. And if the text isn't, I really can't be. I'm, I'm really skating the edge here. I'm just saying that God could have provided bread, but I think Elimelech took a chance on himself. And he went to a place that Israel had already come through and wandered through on their way to the promised land. And it should have been one of those situations where he said, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, not going back. <laughs> right? We've all had those. Been there, done that. But no. It seems like he's really going in the wrong direction on purpose. And actually, if we're honest, if we're, if, if rather than be critical of him, let's bring it down to earth to us. Isn't this what we do if we feel that God's not doing what he should? Do you ever have that? I could be the only one, but probably not. Where God isn't acting fast enough for me. Or God isn't doing what I think he ought to do. I mean, sometimes God doesn't even ask me, if you can believe it. So what do we do with that? We take it into our own hands. We even presume on his grace and say, well, this might not be the right thing to do, but I know he's loving, so I'm on pretty good ground. Scary kind of stuff that we do. We take the wheel. And of course, this is sometimes what we do when we fall away from the Lord, too, when our relationship with him is not vibrant. And so we don't understand him to be real and with us. We don't understand that he's with us all the time and that relationship grows cold and we become a little bit callous and we become kind of apathetic or indifferent to the things of God and we just sort of do it our way and hope that that would be good enough. The scripture uses some vivid imagery here. You know, the sow returns to a muddy wallow. I mean, I don't know anything about raising pigs, but my guess is if you've got one, you shouldn't give it a bath because... It's just going to go get grubby again. It's what they do. A dog. And I'm not talking about those cute little domesticated ones. I'm talking about the ones you eat. The dog returns to his vomit. The Israelites long for Egypt. You remember that? They were in slavery in Egypt. And God brings them out. And they're sitting around pining for soup with leeks in it. Oh, do you remember the food in Egypt it was to die for? Well, yeah, but there was the slavery thing. Yeah, but they had onions. Oh, right, yeah. It's probably worth it, onions, to be a slave. This is a human condition. It's what we do. It's what Elimelech is doing. He's a man with a hungry family who thinks taking them to a pagan land is going to be the solution to his family's problems. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet or plenty, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So get this, Malon in the Hebrew means sickly. And Kilion is derived from a word that means failing or wasting. Do you see the picture of this beginning, the, the clouds that are beginning to build, right? They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So, so God is my king, takes his sweet wife and his sickly and his failing sons to see what life is like among the enemies of God who worship idols. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So, 
I told you earlier, we're in a section of the book called the prologue, right? Just the first five verses is a prologue. A prologue is that the purpose of a prologue is to provide sort of the, the background information for the ensuing story. It's stuff you need to know. And so in these first five verses, as you read them, it seems kind of cold. It's very succinct. We just get the facts. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Okay, that is true, and we need to know that. But you know what? If, if we are going to understand the story, we have to linger over the facts a little bit. What does it mean here that Elimelech has died? The leader of the family. The provider for the family. Is gone. And we don't know how. We don't really know when. We don't exactly know why. But what we know is that Naomi, who left Israel a wife, is now a widow. The Bible has a lot to say about widows, and in particular the care of widows. A woman whose husband passes is, in a patriarchal culture, especially vulnerable. And so scripture commands the care of widows in many, many places. Uh, in fact, James likens the care of widows and orphans in their distress to pure and undefiled religion. You, you want to know what Christianity is about? You want to know what pure and undefiled religion is about? It's taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. What is that all about? It is serving people who have no capacity to serve you back. That's what it is. It's complete selflessness. It's giving to those who cannot in this life repay you. That's what James is saying. And that's why we are commended to the care of widows. Is because they, they may not, they likely will not in that culture, be able to pay you anything. And the Bible commands the care of widows because it recognizes the painful, difficult, vulnerable, and at times overwhelming estate of widowhood. Here is Naomi, a widow in a foreign land. A single mother to two sons. So if you know anything at all about crisis counseling, you know these are some of the ingredients in the recipe for a crisis. Grief and loss, no situational support from family or friends, a strange environment, significant responsibility without the means to fulfill it. Naomi would quite naturally feel overwhelmed. I don't know how she could not feel overwhelmed. How could she not believe that the hand of God, which had rested in judgment on Israel, has now reached over the Dead Sea and has come to rest on her very life. Naomi and her sons are in Moab. I don't know if they have an option to go. If they just choose to stay, they stay. And what one would expect to happen happens. The boys take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. So the family seems, just in these few verses, to be rebounding from the loss of Elimelech. And in fact, the family has grown by two. But just when it seems that things are looking up, both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse. I don't want to think about that. But I can only imagine how difficult it is. And then, to lose a child. That is unthinkable. It is so unnatural. It's, it is 
so out of order. It is hard. Some of you here today have experienced both of those things, and your hearts, just mentioning that, your hearts go right to heaviness. You know the depth of this sort of loss. Death is horrible. Death is horrible. There's no, no wonder that Jesus was indignant at the death of his friend Lazarus when he came to the, to the grave, when he came to join in the suffering of his friends, right? No wonder he wept with those who were weeping at the pain that was caused by death. No wonder he came into the world to be the resurrection and the life. No wonder Jesus came into the world to deal a death blow to death and to overcome that thing which afflicts us so deeply and so greatly and separates us from that which we love. Jesus came to fix that stuff because it's horrible. And he knows it's horrible. And here is Naomi, and she's surrounded by this horribleness. Her husband is gone. And now not one, but two sons. Two sons she's never going to look at. Two sons she's never going to talk to. Two sons she's never going to embrace in this world again. The promise of a better life in Moab has been shattered. The woman, whose name means pleasant, finds nothing pleasing at all about her existence. The woman, whose name is sweetness, knows no sweetness. The one whose name means plenty doesn't feel like she has anything at all. In fact, as we glance at the latter part of verse 5, she's referred to there as simply the woman. Prompting one commentator to write, it's as though she has lost not just her family, but her name. And that is the symbolic end of her descent into emptiness. Naomi, this woman, is husbandless, childless, bereft and destitute in a life that has gone from bad to worse. From hunger in Israel to death in Moab, from brokenness in the promised land to bottom in a strange one. And some would say, well, that's what happens when you disobey the Lord. You know, a good moralist would come up with that and say, that's, that's always what happens when you disobey the Lord. If she and her husband had just stayed put, well, if they stayed put, maybe you wouldn't have died, maybe, but maybe you would have because newsflash, we're all going to die. We're pretty good at hindsight. Have you noticed that? How, how confidently we look back on a situation and say, well, if you'd just done this, that, and the other, it wouldn't have happened that way. Well, it's a perfect argument from silence, and you sound like you're brilliant. We're all good at that. Looking back, this heartache could have been avoided if you'd just done this or that at an earlier juncture. We're also guilty of looking for reasons, looking for just cause for the calamities that befall us and others. Coming upon a man who had been blind from birth, Jesus' disciples are not moved at all by his pitiful condition, but they seek rather an answer to a theological query. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember that story? John chapter 9. Does it strike you how callous those disciples of Jesus Christ could be walking by a blind man and just wanting to know who was at fault? Well, sometimes sin does result in tragedy. That's the reason God tells us to avoid it, by the way. You know that, right? That's why God says don't sin, because it's not going to be good for you. But not all tragedy is the consequence of personal wrongdoing, and sometimes it's hard to know what is. 
What did Jesus say to his disciples when they asked him? It was not that man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You guys got it all wrong. He's looking for someone to blame, but there's, there's no one to blame here. This is all happening because God has a bigger plan than one that you could imagine. Sometimes sin is the cause of personal tragedy. Absolutely it is. But the psalmist also reminds us of this. Psalm 34 verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Even the upright must expect afflictions in this world. And, and by the way, not just one or two or a few. Many. Even the devout should expect, right? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. No one is immune from hardship or suffering in this place. And you can live as righteously as you want, and I encourage you to do that. But you know what? All your rule following isn't going to exempt you from trouble or suffering. The question is not will we suffer, but when will we suffer? And how will we suffer? And beyond that, how will we view our suffering? How will we see it? So let me ask you, can you see your suffering as part of the sovereign will of God for your life? Or will you see it rather as some arbitrary, unjust, pointless, irredeemable proof of God's callousness or God's judgment or God's, even maybe God's abandonment? Will we see our suffering as just one scene among many that comprise the whole of our existence or is it the scene or the defining moment that becomes all that we are and believe about life, about ourselves, about God? Do you know anyone like that? Might you be someone like that? Where you have experienced such heartache and such grief you never get past it and it's all you think about it and it's how you understand yourself and it's how you understand God and it's how you understand others. Part of the teaching of the book of Ruth is this reality, beloved, that in the darkest of moments, when God seems silent and is virtually undetectable, he is at work with a plan we cannot fathom for a good we cannot imagine, because he is a God of salvation. Doesn't feel like that. When you read these first five verses of the book of Ruth, it may not feel like that for you right now, right? And our love for us in this book of Ruth today to scurry past the brokenness and the hurt. And I would love if I could take you with all your hurts and wave some sort of wand and make it all go away. That's what I want to do. I want to take a text like this and paint some sunshine into this bleak, bleak picture. That's what I want to do. It's not what the text does. And so it's not what I'm going to do. We need to sit with this. We need to sit with this. Naomi is a heartbroken, grief-stricken, childless widow standing over three graves in a foreign land. And that's where we leave it. Bow your heads if you would. Let's just quiet ourselves for a moment of reflection and response. And those who are 
going to be baptized might make their way to uh, getting changed if they haven't done so already. Taylor's going to come and lead us in worship of a few songs. But while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let's just think about this text. Let's just think about these truths. Perhaps you find yourself destitute here today and you can relate to this poor woman, Naomi. Maybe you were in what felt like a life or death situation. You chose a path that looked like life and it ended in death. Maybe you feel the trajectory of your life is going down, down, down. You can't seem to stop it. It's going from bad to worse. You might be putting up a good front here this morning, but in truth, you're starving. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually. It could simply be that you're overwhelmed at the great similarities between this period in Israel's history and the current events that are happening in our country today. My friend, is this a scene in your life? Or is it the whole story? Where is God? What is he doing? Listen, he is at work with a plan we cannot fathom for a good we cannot imagine because he is the God of salvation. He loves you. And he's going to take care of you, even if for now you must endure various trials.